Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Okay. Ji uh, Hong makes a carriage. Master Yuan asked a monk. Ji Hong makes carriages with wheels of a hundred spokes yet dismantle the two parts, the front and the back of the carriage, and remove the axle, then what will the carriage be? Okay, we're gonna sit for five minutes. So now we read the koan and the woman's comment. So I guess that's me. Yeah. Um, Master Yueon asked monk, Shijong makes carriages with wheels of a hundred spokes, yet dismantle the two parts, the front and the back of the carriage, and remove the axle. Then what will the carriage be? Newman's comment, if you can directly understand, your eyes will be like shooting stars. Such an occasion is like a flash of lightning. When the axle of the wheel turns, even the expert is deluded. The four directions, plus above and below, south is to the north as east is to the west. Okay, so now we sit for five minutes and then we write for five minutes. Now we ride for five minutes. Does everyone have the book? Okay, well, I won't share them. Oh, but I don't. <laughs> okay. So we begin with Guo Gu, right? Yes. 
Okay. Well, we have to think of Wilmin not as a trickster. No, he's... Even though he, uh, he asks more questions than he answers. <laughs> you know, it seems pretty straightforward until you read him. All right. <laughs> yes. The commentary is often not what we think of as commentary, something that elucidates things and makes them flat and explains them. It deepens the inquiry. It really shifts it. Yeah. Well, yes and no. Oh. <laughs> Corrects. <laughs> okay. So uh, who read? Uh, Donna read. Trouty? You're muted. Trouty? <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry, because we had to come back and then I forgot again. And it doesn't show on my screen un unless I type tap at it. Okay. Gurgu's comment. Chan Master Yuan Shanguo in Woman's Great Grand Master and a contemporary of the famous Linji Chan Master Dahui Zhong Gao. Here he gives the example of Ren Ji Zhong, the legendary horse cart inventor who lived in the third century BCE. All the Chinese people know him. What Yuan is asking in this case is that if you take off the front of the beautiful 100 spoke card that Xi Zhong made and removed the back and also dismantled the axle, then what the hell is left of this card? Where is the card? Is it still a card? In the second century BCE, the Indian subcontinent was divided. There was a great king named Melinda who ruled northwestern India, what is now Pakistan. Prior to his becoming a great patron of Buddhism, he had challenged and persecuted Buddhism until he met Nagasena, an arhat. King Melinda said to Nagasena, oh, you are supposedly an arhat. You Buddhists talk about no self, yet, as I see it, clearly there is a self. For who is it that stands before me wearing the brown robes? Who is it that has the shaved head? Who is it that is called Nagasena? Tell me, what is this teaching of no self? Melinda wasn't really looking for an answer. He really didn't care to know what no self is. He asked because he wanted to debate with Nagasena. Faced with this situation, Nagasena replied, Your Majesty, you look delightful today. Your countenance is wonderful. How did you get here today? Surely your Majesty didn't soil his feet. You must have had a carriage to bring you to this hall. Hmm. <coughs> the king replied, yes, indeed. Nagasena continued, surely you know what a carriage is, your majesty. 
and he went on to describe the king's beautiful carriage, which must have had jewels and ornaments. The king replied, of course. Here is Nagasena's punchline, only in the manner of a Chan master, but more polite. Surely your majesty must know what a carriage is because you know its function, usefulness. You've used it to get it, you used it to get here. Please, your majesty, are the spoke are there are the spokes of the carriage? Are the wheels the carriage? And what about the front portion, the plank on which you stood, and the seat on which you sat? What about the sides? What about all the ornaments? Which one of these is called the carriage? The king was wise. He said, none of those are the carriage. Nagasena replied, excellent, your majesty. Likewise, which one of these do you see as Nagasena? The name, the black brown robe, or the bald head, or maybe the eyes, or this aging body? <coughs> Perhaps his mind. Which one of these do you call Nagasena? The king heard that and joined his palms. Excellent, Nagasena, tell me more. Teach me Buddha Dharma. The king was converted to Buddhism by Nagasena, which was very auspicious as Buddhism flourished under his reign. <laughs> now, this is what Master Yuan is asking all of you. Is your body you? How about your thoughts? Are your happy thoughts or your negative thoughts you? Since you have both happy and negative thoughts, which ones are the true you? Have you thought about this question? Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. But am I just these random thoughts? Who is thinking anyway? Do we have any control over the thoughts? Can we put our minds on one single thing for even five minutes without scattering? We think about A, we think about B, about C. Sometimes we think of things that make us miserable. To say that all of these are me is to be schizophrenic. To say none of these is me and that there is a true me somewhere separate from these is also foolish. If you want to know the path to happiness in this life, you can buy the Dalai Lama's book called A Path to Happiness. But the message is the same as the one I'm going to tell you now. If you want to know the path to happiness, discover the freedom within. There was once a retreatant who came to me for an interview. He was a sincere practitioner. When his life circumstances changed for the worse, he was able to take refuge in the Dharma. In the Dharma. And he reevaluated his whole life priorities. He went deeper into the practice, but there was still something he couldn't let go. He experienced an ever-present awareness as if it were a thing which he called the observer, the witnesser. It became his refuge. Nothing in his life was secure. He had lost everything. Now the only reliable anchor was his awareness. I gently asked him, when you fall asleep, when you lose consciousness, where is the observer then? He said, I don't know. That's why I'm here for the interview. I'm hoping you'll give me a method so I can become aware in direct line to the observer 24 seven. Practice is my life now. When I sit, I am well at peace. 
one with the observer. I didn't want to pull the rug out from under him by telling him that this awareness was an attachment. I said, good, may I modify your practice a bit? He answered, yes, please, that's why I'm here. I said, when you reach a point of stability and calm, when this awareness is steady, ask, who is observing? Don't identify yourself with it. Don't be one with it. Keep asking. This is the way to true peace. All of us at some point, in order to resolve our life's difficulties or challenges, create things to rely on. It's our survival instinct. We can all have we can have all kinds of notions about life and also about death. Have you ever seen a dead person? Perhaps a friend or family member at a funeral? What lies in the coffin looks plastic, lifeless. Something is absent. Yet prior to that, you may have had lively conversations with this person, or you may have, have fond, vivid memories of him or her. Seeing the corpse, where, where is that person now? We deeply fear nothingness. It has become a thing for us. When we experience nothingness, we want something to counter it. This is what this case is about, your own life and death, your own freedom in each and every instant without creating things. Life is not what you think it is, nor is death. When you make death out to be a thing, you will be obstructed. You will have fear and regrets. My mom was the most active, energetic woman I've known. When I was younger, I thought that if anyone were going to live to 120 or 150 or forever, it would be her. She left a message on my phone a week before she died. Hey, you haven't called me for a while. Call your mom. I kept telling myself I'd call her later. I never got to return her call. In my mind, she would never die. She would be there forever. Less than a week after that voicemail, she died in a car crash. She was on her way back from Home Depot, getting supplies to refurbish a temple. The driver, her friend, sped up at an intersection in front of an 18-wheeler thinking that they could make it. They didn't. The 18-wheeler crushed my mom's car. Parts of the car roof came down on my mother's head. She died instantly. The coroner wouldn't let us see her body because the skull was so badly crushed. When I heard the news, I was living in the Midwest. I rushed home, took care of all the funeral arrangements. I'd forgotten about the voicemail she had left for me. In the process of deleting old voicemails, I heard her voice again. Hey, you haven't called me for a while. Call your mom. But where was my mom? Uh, this case encourages you. If you don't want to die with fear and regrets to live your life fully, freely, without bondage, what is it to live unbound? It is not living without rules, like a free spirit. <coughs> uh, 
So I, I'm I'm thinking of the um, the the wheel that you can't see when it's doing what wheels do of turning. Is that connected? It is not living without rules like a free spirit. Rather, it is to be free from the shackles of vexations and deluded thinking, things that bind you wherever you are, whatever you do. If you do not free yourself from bondage, then you will be forever deeply bound by this thing of self. You may wonder, who am I if not my body, thoughts, and experiences? Who is the observer? As all the parts of your body, thoughts, and experiences change in each moment, what do you call yourself? Buddhism does not advocate the idea that there is some kind of soul reincarnating one lifetime after another, after another, and so on. Yet, it nevertheless teaches the cycle of rebirth that can shackle us. This seems like a contradiction. What is it that goes through rebirth if there is no permanent, unchanging self? The Buddha did not teach that there is a permanent observer that is ever present. When you enter a deep trance or samadhi, where is the observer? When you get punched and knocked out or faint, where is the self? When you are in a coma, where seemingly there is no mental activity, why is it that when you come out of it, you still know who you are? How is it possible, if there was no continuity in that state, that once you woke up, all the memories came back? How is this different from so-called death? This is a mystery each and every one of us must come to face and understand. When you understand, you are free, liberated, and awake from the slumber of delusion. This is what is meant by, if you can directly understand, your eyes will be like shooting stars. Chakyamuni Buddha, the historical Buddha, was enlightened upon seeing a shooting star. Prior to that, he had vowed not to get up from his seat until he was enlightened. So he meditated under a tree for days. Finally, in complete exhaustion, he saw a shooting star. And in that last moment, on that threshold, he put down the self. He became free from grasping onto something that was never there in the first place. In that utter clarity, he just saw the star shooting. If you were also to put down your self-grasping in an instant, a flash, you would see through the eyes of a Buddha. Shallow awakening experiences are like a flash of lightning, and you get a glimpse of complete freedom. All the burdens and baggage you have been troubled by throughout your life suddenly vanish as if a thousand pound weight had been lifted from your shoulders. Everything comes to life, and you see the world without self-referentiality. But with a greater, more thorough awakening, you taste complete liberation. The Tang Dynasty Chan Master Yongjia Chuanjue is in the Chan tradition what we call a one-night stand Chan Master. <laughs> he had a one-night encounter with the great sixth lineage master of the Chan tradition, Hui Neng. In their exchange of dialogue, Yong Jia became thoroughly awakened. When he was about to leave, he bowed deeply and said, Thank you 
Hui Neng asked him, why don't you stay a night as it is already getting dark? Yong Jia stayed for just one night. Upon his awakening experience, Yong Jia exclaimed, the six realms of existence of birth and death are just like a dream. That's how thorough his experience was. When you know it directly, your eyes are like the eyes of the Buddha. Your wisdom eye is like seeing a shooting star. All of the clutter of your delusions, vexations, concepts, words, and language drop off. Everything is readily present. It is only your self-attachment that is absent. Did we lose Glenn? No, I'm here. The verse says, when the axle of the wheel turns, even the expert is deluded. The axle of the wheel is Yi in Chinese. It has many nuances. It can mean the mechanism, can mean the axle, can also mean the essence, the crux, the principle of all things. Woman here is playing with words. He is saying, if you understand the principle of how this gaong turns, the essence of it, then you are liberated. But if you think you are an expert, you will be deluded. In China, there is no expert, nor beginner, no wisdom, nor delusion, no holy, nor common. These things are mere constructs, ideas that you tell yourself. They are part of the script you write of your life. Does life really have a script? Is a carriage really a carriage? Is a chariot really a chariot? You may think that life does not have a script because death wipes all scripts clean to mere emptiness. This is also wrong. In Chan, emptiness is wonderful existence. If emptiness were nothingness, what would be the point of practice? Why not just die and be liberated? Life, death, carriage, and chariot are just phenomena you create. In wonderful selfless existence, all of your actions benefit all beings. Life permeates everything there is. The four directions, plus, above and below, south is to the north as east is to the west. Everything is already present, alive. You just need to stop fixating on carriages and chariots. Oops, that's it. Well, that's clear. Yeah, but it doesn't even exhaust this koan. Is the wheel of Dharma connected to this? It seems from Wumen's comment that it is. Um, turning of the wheel and all that? I don't think so. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't get that connection particularly. Um,
It's, it's the interesting thing about it for me is it brings together two of my very favorite topics, definition and um, relationship. So the whole koan for me is about the fact that everything is defined through relationship, through its relation to, to other things. Um, so east is only makes any sense in relation to west, right? Or north or south even. And that carriage only exists when it's the, when the parts are in relationship with each other. So like uh, we have a sangha, we have a bunch of individuals, but that's not really a sangha, a bunch of individuals. There's some, something that connects them and weaves them together into something that is an entity of its own, right? So that's how it struck me as like, oh, I see. If you took, um, just took the people s separately in a sangha, you, you wouldn't see any sangha there. You know, it's when they're in connection and some sort of relationship with each other that the sangha um, emerges, just materializes, just there. So there's not, there's no thing to point to. That's and that's kind of what was uh, what Nagasena was uh, telling the king, right? There's no actual thing to point to without something. Um, so you know, you can't define things except as they're related to each other. So you'd have to say probably all of those things are Nagasena, the, the head, the shaved head, the brown robes, the name, the history, the thoughts that are going through his mind. So this is exactly what the Buddha taught in terms of the skandhas. So the skandhas exactly. are yeah. that makeup. Yeah, so same with um, same as with the carriage is with the skandhas. So if you dropped off consciousness and you dropped off, you know, sense uh, consciousness and you dropped off, you know, form and, uh, and sensations and perceptions, would there be a being there? No. This is exactly what the Buddha was teaching about the skandhas. I wonder if the story where his wife was killed and he wasn't allowed to look at her skull, if that even relates that this, there wasn't anything there. Why he told that story. Did, didn't we just read that story? I didn't imagine it. Okay. Yes, yes. What was that about? I mean, how did that connect? I'm, I, I'm not, I'm not re recalling this story. Wait, his mother died. He, 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 oh, oh yeah. His mother died. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't allowed to look at the body because there was no skull because it had it'd been crushed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what wasn't it because he talks in the next paragraph about, you know, if you don't want to live without regret, don't live in bondage. To, don't have that attachment. Yeah. I, I mean, that's part of what I was writing about when we did our writing time was when, when I die, you know, will there be anything left of me? You know, will my, what will my grandchildren think about me? Who is the me they will think about? It's kind, that's kind of a flat earth kind of question is what Steve Hagen calls it in his new book, you know, um, because it doesn't, 
it's it frames the uh, it frames the whole debate in the wrong way. So if you know that everything is transformation, that you're continually being transformed, even your consciousness is continually being transformed, right? Mm-hmm. You can't say that you had the same consciousness you had even this morning. Right. Right. So it's another transformation. It's not one that we understand very well, um, but it's another transformation. We don't know what that means. Right. Right. In the same way that a nine-year-old doesn't know what it means to be 16 and get a driver's license, you know, (coughs) there's just no way of knowing that transformation until you move through it. There's no way of knowing what it's going to be like to have a, a child until you have one, no matter how many people, you know, have kids, no matter how much babysitting you do. So if you understand there's no permanent abiding anything and everything is in this river of transformation, then literally, what is, what is death? We, you know, I, I kind of related when he uh, talked about his mother's death. I was remembering when my sister died and she was about 16 and I was 19. And they had an open casket viewing the night, uh, you know, before the funeral. And at 19, I remember looking down at her in the casket. It just sort of like uh, what he's talking about. I saw her body, but it looked like a mannequin to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I just knew that what, I, I didn't form it in my mind, but just whatever it was that my sister was was not this body it had gone it wasn't there anymore this was just sort of a body you know and and then the question is but where is she you know that which she was what what i knew her to be where where did that go you know and that's that's the age that's the question we're being asked to really sink into for ourselves even you know yeah, it was. Um... That's why that that very same perplexing question is why the afterlife was created as a concept. Yeah. Yeah, you can think of all kinds of stories to make up about what happens or where you go or, you know, any of any of those other things. And uh, interestingly enough, I did have an experience um, where she came to me. It felt. Somebody told me it was a dream, but it didn't feel like a dream. <laughs> it was palpable, right? It was palpable. Pardon? It was palpable. Oh, it was palpable. No, she 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 came and um, appeared, you know. But uh, you know, I, can, I I don't know about all that. I mean, that's kind of getting into some. I don't know how to put that into any kind of box that fits in with good Buddhism or anything else, you know. Good. But, um, but it, but it was interesting because I think what I got from that was that whatever this is that she was, this essence of her, still was. Maybe not in the body, but still is, you know? <laughs> I, I don't know. You know, it just, um, it was, yeah. you know. How, how did she die, Gail? Uh, it was um, an overdose of sleeping pills. Oh. And she had... Um, walking pneumonia she was very tiny girl and um she had uh, had an argument with a boyfriend and was depressed and took 
one too many sleeping pills, but according to the coroner, if she'd been of a healthy weight, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have taken her. So it was, um, it was kind of, a, you know, one of those, it was a shock. Horrible mm -hmm. shock and a really yeah. traumatic one at the age you were. Yeah. 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 It, it, it really was. But, um, uh, that experience I had afterwards actually um, helped me. Yeah. You know, it really did because it made me know that whatever it is she is, is still, it still is, you know, <laughs> that's all I can say, you know. Not, not to put a bummer on this whole thing. I'm, <laughs> but, but it, it, you know, brings up that question that I even ask myself: What is this? What are we? What, what am I really? What am I really? It's the right question, you know. As um, Gogo's student said, the observer. Well, mm -hmm. yeah, that's not there either. No, it's not even that. <laughs> not even that. Yeah. yeah, it's a that's a comforting fiction, though. Yeah, it is. And I can see where people would get stuck in that. You know what I mean? Like, oh, now I know what it is. It's this thing that seems to be looking at everything. But um, it's not even that. Yeah. That's, hmm. It seems like there's a real thread that, I mean, we're only on case eight, but um, Google Guo. Guo Gu um, keeps sort of circling back to the idea about self-referentiality and how um, we sure do seem to do it a lot. Um, and how, well, let's see, what was that? Um, all of the clutter of your delusions, vexations, concepts, words, and language drop off. Everything is readily present. It is only your self-attachment that is absent. I mean, you just, you know, the, I hear that note being struck again and again. And, and he offers some really interesting clues about how, you know, they're sprinkled about how we can kind of detach ourselves from this self-referentiality. Um, Um, what a practice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and it's echoes too of um, Dogen's uh, body and mind dropped off that Rujing, you know, and at least in the, in the legend, awakened him by. Mm -hmm. And that he talks about and, you know, dropping off body and mind a lot. Um, so. And surely we get to keep at least one of those. <laughs> And since the body's out, it must be the mind. It must be the mind, yeah. It's, it's kind of like the netty netty, you know, the um, you know, the non-dual, you know, yes. uh, not this, not this. Not this, not yeah. this. So with with my sister, I realized not body. We're not body. And and then if you really examine your um life you know, um, just your day-to-day -day experience, sometimes you'll discover uh, you're not mind either. 
you know, there are times when you're just totally offline and you're just moving around, you know, but, but there's no thought, there's nothing happening up here. So, you know, you keep discarding things and um, that's all I know, know to do really, you know. Yeah, I think the mind issue is a really interesting one because we, we think a person in a coma is still that person. We think a person with dementia is still that person, although they're manifestly quite different in their mind than anything we've known before, right? So it's interesting to me um, how we can search and search and practice for the source of what it is we're attached to as ourself, who we are, you know. Um, but we, we just end up going around in circles. We can't really find it. And that's actually a good thing. Who would we be if we had a brain transplant? Yeah, or there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of science fiction about various kinds of, uh, you know, bionic people and hybrids of humans and artificial intelligence. And, uh, and all of that is sort of talking about that boundary. Where, what's, the, what's the part of us that's us? my friend John Slayton, who was blind, had a guide dog. And he said, my sense of organs end at the tip of that dog's nose. That dog is me. You know, that dog is part of me. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. It sort of expanded the boundaries of himself to include a dog. Um, and that dog was, was also him. So. And it does seem like from some of the things that we've read that, um, you know, ultimately we sort of expand to take it all in, sort of like he said at the end about everything is already present, alive. You just need to stop fixating on carriages or chariots um, or bodies and minds. Right. Yeah. I think it's very... So that because this is our this is our reference point in the universe is this you know so yeah what were you saying glenn i was speaking to donna's comment about fixating on chariots so so i have i have a box in my mind about what constitutes a chariot right let's say a car I have, a, I have an idea about when I would consider something to be a car. And at some point, it's, it's little different parts and pieces of metal and rubber and glass from all over the planet. And I wouldn't call that a car. And, and then it's moving down an assembly line and I wouldn't call that a car. And then maybe I can see it's kind of getting a frame or something and saying, well, oh, that's kind of starting to look like a car. And then at some day, at some point, I would say, aha, it rolls onto the showroom floor, right? And it, it fits my image of what a car is. And it will hold that image for 20 or 30 years. And then it will go back into the junkyard and it will, it will go back into parts and the glass will become sand and the rubber will become dust. And um, and all of these things have a life of their own. And 
the fact that they line up briefly into something that I fits an image or a fixation that I have for that instant. And then I will say it's a car, but, uh, but it is all, but, but, but it is all of the things of the, of the world without me perceiving it. That's my perception. That's causing me to need it to fit this word or idea or image. The fixation is in me, my perception. Well, in the that, definition and also in the figure ground relationship. So you're thinking of it as a car that is distinct from a background, you know, right. but on Mopac, it's just traffic. It's part of a stream, right? It's not right. even a separate thing. It's just traffic. There's just traffic. Um, so, yeah, so uh, everything depends on the scale at which we're viewing something, both in terms of time and in terms of space and what it's in reference to. That's why I think relationality is so important. What is it related to? So, yeah. So how, so how, how am I any different? I, I have my I have genetic material and I have what I had for lunch and I have history and I have culture and thoughts and words and ideas and neurons. And right now they're lined up in a way that I believe is, is Glenn, right? Yeah. But but they won't be forever. In fact, already I'm shedding hair and cells. And I mean, you know, and someday then, I'll shed them all together. And furthermore, that's just your opinion. So in every relationship that you have, someone has a different Glenn, right? Right. So they would say, well, Glenn is funny, or they would say Glenn is hardworking, or they would say, you know, like um, they would have a different Glenn. And they would, all would be assume, in there. Yeah, they would all assume at your funeral that they were talking about the exact same person. Right, right. So there's a problem of apamata and care. How do we, you know, we're, we're talking also about caring for this thing and now the thing <laughs> doesn't exist. Well, um, it does exist and it doesn't exist. So in the same way that we exist and we don't exist. So we don't have, we don't have, there's, we're, we're not separate from anything else. So when we have care for each other, that's what we're weaving. That's what we're creating. That's, those are actions. Um, and that weaving we call Sangha. So we have a name for, for that kind of coming together with a shared aspiration and, um, and people working together in spiritual community. So the care is not for a thing, but for it's care of the relationship. It's care of the relationship, exactly. And it's care that creates the relationship. So, you know, there are communities that are marked by conflict and strife, right? So argument is the dominant form of discourse and people are constantly, you know, at war with each other. There are communities like that or communities where someone's always being victimized, someone's always being wounded, someone's always, you know, the whole situation's always fraught because of that. Um, and that's what they weave together. And sometimes I, I, I look at office places, you know, where there's a lot of backbiting and gossip. And I think you guys come together to work and you created this, this is what you decided to create together. You got these great big brains and you, you decided that you were gonna create this kind of atmosphere. Why, why would you do that? It makes no sense to me. 
There's no prizes for it. There's nothing so, existing. You know, there's a there's a a, a a space people come into. They have functions, they have jobs, or whatever, um, and then they ascribe all these meanings to their interactions with each other. And that's what they decided to create out of those meanings, instead of uh, you know empathic connection and uh, mutual support and care, which happens in other kinds of work environments. So that's why people are so surprised when they move from one job to another and the and the whole environment is different because people decided that's how they were going to relate to each other. But there's no, there's just no there there. There's not there's no. There's no actuality to it. It's all all a creation. So that's a little bit like going back to the cart and the carriage, that you've got the parts, the parts are put together correctly, and you know, here's a cart, here's a carriage. Right. But for it to fulfill its function, it really is. It's dependent on interdependence. Absolutely. Yeah, if one of the wheels breaks down, you don't, you, your carriage doesn't go, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, or, you know, someone says, okay, I need this carriage over here. So, you know, it gets, it moves over there or, and it seems like that is, is similar to the way things work in the song. Yeah, I, I think this is really such an interesting koan. It's so simple and it's so easy to understand in a certain kind of way. Um, and then the more you inquire into it, um, the more it uh, layers it unfolds. Yeah, so maybe our eyes aren't like shooting stars yet, but we're, you know, we're getting there. <laughs> We just call it a carriage. We call it a carriage, but we, but it really never was a carriage, in essence, you know. <laughs> um, well, I'll 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 read you a quote that that is directly about this, but that comes not from anyone in Buddhism. Okay, uh, hold on. Uh, See if I can find it um, quickly. It's a little slow here, searching. There we go. It's. Okay, so this is um, this is by a very famous architect, Christopher Alexander, and it's Notes from the Timeless Way of Building, which is about it sort of, sort of takes a Taoist approach to architecture. So he says it's certainly so. When you're talking about architecture, you're talking about structures and elements in in, uh, in these structures, right? So he says it's certainly not enough 
merely to say that every pattern of events resides in space. That is obvious and not very interesting. What we want to know is just how the structure of the space supports the patterns of events it does in such a way that if we change the structure of the space, we shall be able to predict what kinds of changes in the patterns of events this change will generate. In short, we want a theory which presents the interaction of the space and the events in a clear and unambiguous way. Further, it's very puzzling to realize that the elements, which seem like elementary building blocks, keep varying and are different every time that they occur. For among the endless repetition of elements, we see almost endless variation. Each church has a slightly different nave, the aisles are different, the west door is different, and in the nave, the various bays are usually different, the individual columns are different, each vault has slightly different ribs, each window has a slightly different tracery and different glass. If the elements are different every time that they occur, evidently, then it cannot be the elements themselves which are repeating in a building or a town. These so-called elements cannot be the ultimate atomic constituents of space. Since every church is different, the so-called element we call church is not constant at all. Giving it a name only deepens the puzzle. If every church is different, what is it that remains the same from church to church that we call church? Let us therefore look more carefully at the structure of the space from which a building or a town is made to find out what it really is that is repeating there. We may notice first that over and above the elements, there are relationships between the elements which keep repeating too, just as the elements themselves repeat. Beyond its elements, each building is defined by a certain patterns of relationships among the elements. When we, re when we look closer, we realize that these relationships are not extra, but necessary to the elements, indeed a part of them. When we look closer still, we realize that even this view is not very accurate. For it is not merely true that the relationships are attached to the elements. The fact is that the elements themselves are patterns of relationships. For once we recognize that much of what we think of as an element, in fact, lies in the pattern of relationships between this thing and the things in the world around it, we then come to the second even greater realization that the so-called element is itself nothing but a myth. And that indeed the element itself is not just embedded in a pattern of relationships, but is itself entirely a pattern of relationships and nothing else. And finally, the things which seem like elements dissolve and leave a fabric of relationships behind, which is the stuff that actually repeats itself and gives the structure to a building or a town. Same, right? That's beautiful. <laughs> I love his writing. Yeah. What is that book in? The Timeless Way of Building. So. He was um, the uh, Dean of Architecture at uh, UC Berkeley. And uh, he wrote this book, The Timeless Way of Building, which is a, a kind of, I think, very influenced by Taoism. I had no reason to be reading this book. I was in the middle of writing my dissertation when I walked into, when we still had a book stop uh, over there near uh, where I lived, I walked in and I, and I walked over to a section I never go to, the architecture section, and I walked over to the shelf and I picked this book off the shelf. 
and I looked at the first page and I immediately took it home. So he also has a pattern language, which is a very sure. interesting, yeah, very interesting book. But this timeless way of building is more of the deep theory um, underlying his his work. But yeah, I love What's that. His first name? Christopher Alexander. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fame. The pattern language is famous. So so Peg, um, Dogen, you you read to us a passage from Dogen three or four years ago that was about a house. It was about a house, the house coming together and the elements of a house. Does that sound familiar? Is that you? Was. I don't remember that from Dogen. Okay. Yeah. I'll track it down. Yeah. Yeah, I track it down and let me know. I mean, I, I, it's not ringing a bell with me. Um, from Dogen. It was more temporal. I, I, I interpreted the same way, but, it, but that was my three or four year ago mind. So I may not have, I may have missed the. Yeah. Yeah. I don't recall it, but anyway, but yeah, so I thought this is the same thing, you know, like a, um, the things that seem like elements dissolve because they're only uh, relationships. Huh. So, and, and interestingly enough, I had, um, when I was uh, teaching a class on um, uh, information architecture, I had students creating databases and I said, um, so let's use as the example database, you're gonna build a little database so you understand what they do. Um, uh, what are the elements that would be repeating that would create a sense of a person so that you could put those things in like hair color or eye color like the DMV does and you'd, and you'd pretty much um, identify a person. Um, and how would you say yourself is constructed? And the fields that you use would be the fields you would also use to um, define someone else, for example. So, you know, um, age or weight or whatever, you know. So, so they went right to it. I had one student who came back with a database with 200 entries and the 200 entries were his relationships. And he said, I'm completely defined by my relationships. That was probably the wisest student I've ever had. He, he, in essence, was saying there's no there there except through relationships. So same same as Christopher Alexander. <laughs> when you think in that way, you begin to think in terms of uh, processes and flows instead of in terms of entities. And that shifts everything when you do that. That's really systems thinking, you know, but when you realize, oh, um, everything is situated in a fabric of relationships um, and that those re relationships are dynamically changing. Now you're starting to think um, ecologically. And it's easier. It's actually easier than thinking. It's so much, it's so much work to deal with individual entities. It's so much work to carve that out, you know, like, you know, well, Glenn is stolid, you know, <laughs> like it's so much work to do that compared to the uh, dance of interaction, you know, and uh, the sort of the play of uh, relating. So, you know, I feel like it's, so, it's almost like, uh, it's almost like a kind of violence. But people constantly do it. You know, they're constantly uh, treating each other as if they're objects. 
and fixed objects at that. Even more problematic. Fixed in the sense of not changing. Yeah, yeah, you know. Fixed in the sense that they're not you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it, it's really different um, way of looking at it to think of care as about caring, uh, sustaining relationships. It's about quality of relating. That's all it's about, you know, and um, like Flint was saying, you know, his mentor said that was there's no such thing as marriage. There's only quality of relating. And that's dynamic. That's dynamically that's dynamically flowing. So, and we can we can continuously recognize that because we're you know we have moods that change, we have thoughts that come into our minds, and uh, and they're all relational, all of them. And when you so it's very freeing to recognize that it's just very freeing. You're now instead of fighting the flow of things, you're you're um, in accord with it. You're not trying to protect something solid. You're not imagining something else solid over there that's bumping into you and giving you problems. It's very important. That's very, very important in times of great uncertainty, not to be clinging to the furniture, you know? <laughs> and fall on you. <laughs> let, let it go down river, you know, like just let it go. <laughs> That's why the very last, the very last uh, piece of the Anapanasati Sutta is let it go, letting it go. The, and you know, and I, and you, you know, you have to, the warning label on the bottle is that doesn't mean that you don't exercise. <laughs> right. You know, that's another ditch. So, yeah. yeah. This is a, such a great koan. It's so, it's so short. Well, the expert is diluted because he doesn't see the spokes. That's one way to think about it. When I when I read that part, I immediately thought of the um, scholar who was the master of the Diamond Sutra, had all the books, you know, and uh, and was stopped by the the tea lady and was going to get a tea cake. Yeah, I immediately thought of that. <laughs> I thought of the five skandhas. Yeah. Because that's given often as some kind of a practice. Um, Deconstructing, not finding the self, right? 
yeah to peel apart this part and that part and yeah you can't locate it and yet it's pretty clear something's experiencing something mm -hmm. But again, it's, it's, you know, like it's framing the question wrong. It's not a thing that's. Poppy's flat out. She's, she's exhausted herself playing with her toys. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> she's, she's just getting bigger. <laughs> Alarming. It's a little alarming. <laughs> what are the marks on the floor for? Well, that's for Tai Chi. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's the grid for Tai Chi. How big is she going to be, Peg? I don't know, and I'm starting to be alarmed about it. I think about 45 pounds is what they said, but who knows, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she's, she's, she's developed a real thing for water and for mud. So, <laughs> so she finds a little mud puddle. She's just delighted. She runs through it many, many times, you know? So I had to, I had to teach her a foot bath, you know? So I get this roasting pan and in the beginning I had a roasting pan. It was maybe about like this, you know, and, uh, and she could put all four feet, feet in it. But now I have the big in, industrial roasting pan that we use for intensives, you know, and she still can't fit all of herself in it. So. <laughs> I ordered a, a kitty, kitty swimming pool for her because she loves it so much playing in the water. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Well, Peg, I hope when you um, make this move that you're, you know, working towards that there'll be a, a nice space for Jizo to run around in. <laughs> that's my intention. I hope so. Yeah. And uh, some, you know, puppy kindergarten classes and... <laughs> It's really hard. They're doing all this stuff on Zoom now, so mm. no, not the same. Yeah, my um, my son-in-law is a dog trainer. Oh. Yeah, and he um, he has so much work right now. You cannot believe it because of everybody's all the people who've adopted dog. puppies. Yeah, everybody's getting a dog, and people don't know how to train dogs. So. No, it, he says his biggest job is training the owners. The owners, absolutely. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, how great! What a great profession. Oh God, he loves it. It's his own business. Finally, he's he's cut out for it. That's great. Yeah. Well, we're kind of at the end of our time, so it's so great to spend time with you, and I love delving into these koans. It's it's just a, a pure pleasure. It used to feel so fraught to me, like I've got to figure this out somehow, you know? It's not making any sense to me. And I was freaking myself out with them, but now I have such a playful feeling about them. They're so, such a delight uh, to play with. Okay, that's our clue. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye. See you next time. <laughs>